The content of this episode is an adaptation from the book titled "Lacking a Christian Voice in the Mainstream Culture," by me. It's been said that what shapes a nation is not the social policies, but the songs that people sing, the movies they watch, the novels they read, and the newspaper they buy. In other words, artists, from Springsteen to Lady Gaga or Adele, or maybe Jay Z and Kanye West. Have more to contribute to shaping how we think and behave than our senators and congressmen, or perhaps Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Mad Max, and Matrix remake tell a larger story than what we see on the silver screen. As much as many artists would say their work merely show what's already out there, I tend to think art takes a larger role in shaping our world. When Bob Dylan asked. How many times can a man turn his head, pretending he just doesn't see? That was not only his question; it became the question of that generation, and the answer was not found blowing in the wind, but in protests and in civil disobedience. When we listened to Simon and Garfunkel telling us that people are talking without speaking or hearing without listening, when we haunted by the profound depiction that. Somehow doesn't fit the story of Benjamin and Mrs. Robinson, and try eavesdropping to Springsteen talking about my hometown. His intention was to invoke images of thousands of hometowns imprinted in the minds of his audiences, and the emotions that came with them. What about movies? Even for a superstar special effect, no brain needed sci-fi production like Terminator. A progressive pessimism in the apocalyptic outlook says a lot about the change of mood in the past thirty years. At the end of part one, the hero saved the day. At the end of part two, the hero stopped the disaster, and the future then was unknown. At the end of part three, we're told the stage was set. Disaster will come. In all the sequels and remake that came after, no longer look for salvation. We're just trying to make it through the day. More contemporary apocalyptic genre like *A Quiet Place* or *The Matrix Resurrections* don't even pretend things are merely getting worse. The stories would begin with mankind already in the worst place, and it's about how one person or one family gets to survive the day. A sense of pessimism continues to feed our sentiment. If art speaks of values and forms perspectives, then our choices of actions are not independent from them, which brings us to the realm of spirituality. Art is never a foreign subject to Christianity. Christian art has formed the cultural fabric of Western civilization for many years. Think of the magnificent work of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, and the legendary painting *The Last Supper* by Leonardo da Vinci. They stirred the souls not only of the medieval but also of the contemporary. Students of classical music continue to learn Bach today, but do they know his music is deeply informed by theological concerns? Audience of Handel's Messiah may still stand for the section Hallelujah. But may not realize the lyrics of the beginning sections come straight out of Isaiah 40 in the King James version. Readers of classics like Victor Hugo's Les Misérables, 
J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia would have completely missed the point, not to mention a lack of appreciation of the depth, if they did not grasp the Christian messages behind the stories. These literatures, visual and audio arts, captured the excitement of their contemporary and we still celebrate the wonder and glory they represent. But slowly, that vigor of spiritual passion was gradually lost, to the point that it is no longer remembered. Christian classics shine in history not only because the artists were masters, it is also because the art created were faith expressions that often reflect the heart and mind of that generation. Consider the architecture of cathedrals and basilicas of the Roman Catholics. The Gothic style of high ceilings did not merely coincide with the invention of flying buttress. The architectural design intends to convey the theological idea of a transcendent God. When the worshipper enters the cathedral, he immediately feels his own smallness within the majestic structure with paintings of angels and saints looking down from heaven and Christ represented by the crucifix positioned in the front center to whom he pays homage. Medieval priests saw the cathedral as miniature of the created universe, which supreme beauty is based on perfect proportions and ideal numbers designed by God, the divine mathematician. Take the Notre Dame in Paris for example. This beautiful cathedral was built according to the biblical measurement of the Solomon Temple as instructed in the Old Testament. Another treasure of France, the Amiens, adopts the dimension of the New Jerusalem described in the Book of Revelation. The engineers understood their work as building some kind of heaven on earth, a media combining both vividness and mystery that transports the mind of worshippers from their daily lives of toil to the lofty heights of eternity, forming the aspiration for heaven in the mid-centuries. Was that too abstract? Then consider the impact of the Wesleyan hymns on the English movement Romanticism and the first great awakening in America during the 18th century. Charles Wesley, together with his brother John, were towering figures of the Methodist movement, which forms the foundation of American evangelicalism. Quoting from Wesley's contemporary on religious music, church historian Mark Knoll tells us that his hymn is The Ordinary Man's Theology. Instead of falling prey to the pretentious formalism adopted by the neoclassic style of his time, Charles Wesley was like a man broke free from literary chain. He addressed directly the love and passion of his personal Christ, understood by the common men and women, therefore injected life and vitality to the church. It was this revolutionary moment of art and literature that allowed him to write hymns that shine forever. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain? For me, 
whom him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, should die for me? It is through words of passion like these that Wesley feud the Romantics and the Revivalists who wrote a page in both English and American history. Historians of the 19th century deem this movement more than religious in nature. The Yale professor Henry Beers says it would be unphilosophical to think of the English Romantic movement as merely an aesthetic affair. And I quote, It sought to evoke from the past a beauty that it found wanting in the present, was but one phase of that revolt against the coldness and spiritual deadness of the first half of the 18th century. Unquote. He concludes that the Methodist movement and the evangelical revival led by people like Wesley had brought back warmth and color into English thought, the church, the politics, and philosophy. In other words, the art of Charles Wesley shaped the mainstream culture of his time. But what of the present? Does art still have the power to command cultural mood of American mindset? We can't imagine art form like architecture or music still have the same driving force to move sociological trend. Or can we? It has been argued that the sitcom Will and Grace shifted the American perspective on gay and lesbian that ultimately led to legalizing gay marriage. If the entertainment industry, in particular shows and movies, have become an important source of ideas in our increasingly visualized culture, then it is only practical to question if Christianity performs well in this new world of art appreciation. In terms of the attitude of the church towards Hollywood, theologian Robert Johnston from Fuller Seminary describes five responses that the church has adopted over time. Avoidance, caution, dialogue, appropriation, and divine encounter. Although we still find all of them in the mix, Christianity has largely moved from avoiding to engaging, and most would agree that more serious discussions on motion pictures have become common. Tony Campolo, for example, in his foreword to Gareth Higgins's How Movies Helped Save My Soul, compares the author's approach to movies to what Soren Kiergaard calls indirect communication. And Johnston plainly calls movies modern-day parables. In his book, Real Spirituality, he has a very interesting reference on what Sally McFaig once says, and I quote, If theology becomes overtly abstract, conceptual, and systematic, it separates thought and life, belief and practice, words and their embodiment, unquote. On the other hand, Jesus' parables always integrate them. Therefore, McFaig believes that these parables should be used as models for theological reflection. Now, this is the cross point of film and theology. If stories and parables are models for theology, then we should rethink our modern-day storytelling on the silver screen. When come to discussing how well Christians engage with cinematic theology, or simply asking how good are Christian films, 
One is reminded of like recovering from a tonsillectomy. It is painful, but you get to eat all the ice cream you want. Christian movies appeal to Christians mostly because of the selected themes and messages. In other words, we like them because they say what we want them to say. That's the ice cream part. On the other hand, Christian movies often lack a sense of realism. Rather than depicting what real life looks like, they paint a facade of what they want you to hear. When the late Eugene Peterson was still with us, rock singer Bono of U2 visited with him, and they talked about Psalms, art in the Bible, and both agreed being authentic in art is significant. Peterson described Psalms in its very raw terms as he reflected on this Old Testament book. It's not smooth, he says. It's not nice. It's not pretty. It's honest, which is very, very hard in our culture. Echoing his host, Bono gave a less than favorable critique to Christian art. I find in Christian art a lot of dishonesty. Peterson seemed to agree. Bono further says, "I would love if this conversation would inspire people who are writing these beautiful gospel songs to write a song about their bad marriage, write a song about how they are pissed off with the government, because that's what God wants from you. That truth, that truthfulness, will blow things apart. Why I am suspicious about Christians is because of this lack of realism." And I would love to see more of that in art, and in life, and in music. The same can be said about films. People in general know what real life looks like. When Christian films keep painting a picture that's neat and tidy, their audience know they are selling something, and the product makes them cringe. Christian producers often see the silver screen as a new kind of preaching pulpit. Rather than the medium where one projects the conceived creativity of storytelling, when Michelangelo created the sculpture David, he did not begin from an agenda of pronouncing the glory of God. David, according to him, was already in the marble. He simply chiseled away what didn't belong. In the movie Amadeus. The character Salieri describes how Mozart creates music while he gives confession to the priest. He had simply written down music, already finished in his head, as if he were merely taking dictation. Here again was the very voice of God. Artists do not create with an agenda. In doing so. Christian movies have unfortunately become the branding for cheesy, with all the good intentions of using a contemporary medium to spread the good news. Christian movies basically kill the art of motion pictures. A big part of creating art is the expression of the artist, what the artist sees and experiences in life. Guernica is a masterpiece by Picasso. This modern art icon is dubbed the Mona Lisa of our time. The painting depicts death and destructions after the bombing of Guernica in 1937, as a protest against the war. It continues to be one of the most important work of Picasso. From this perspective, 
I suppose my questions for Christian artists would be, what do you see? What do you aspire? What do you conceive as a result of loving God and loving your neighbor? What is your experience in the darkest hour waiting for the morning light to come but seems like it is never coming? How do you fare in human sufferings while navigating towards a divine redemption? How do you deal with disappointment? What does God's love look like? You see, I truly believed the honest answer to these questions forms the foundation of great Christian art that can attract the world to ponder with awe. The real challenge is, do we have anything for show?